welcome to the More Than Music podcast with your hosts Thibaut Duchesne and Chris Snellgrove. In each episode, we will discuss what sparked our guests' passion and what continues to motivate them to live a dedicated life to the arts. The often overlooked reality is that genuinely dedicating oneself to one's art is not all about the euphoric moments of creation and expression. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the More Than Music podcast. I'm Thibaut with your host, Chris Snellgrove. And today on our first show, we have Jesse Gander. Jesse Gander has been involved in sound and music production for over 20 years. He's the owner and chief recording engineer at Rain City Recorder uh, in Vancouver, BC. He's recorded about 600 releases with over 500 bands from artists from around the world. He's worked with bands from Argentina, Colombia, Cuba, Italy, Japan, Scotland, Ireland, England, Belgium, the United States, and of course, Canada. And these projects have been varied in genre with a focus on original and independent music. He's also a staple in the Vancouver music scene. He's toured extensively in Canada, US, Europe, and even Cuba and played, played well over a thousand live shows. He's currently playing keyboards and sings in the Uptights, who just put out a new record. He was in a band such as DBS, Operation Makeout, Black Rice, Plus Perfect, Previous Tenants, and Ghost House. It's my great pleasure to introduce my good friend, our good friend, Chris and I, Jesse Gander. How you doing, Jesse? Hello, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So Jesse's uh, our first guest for this podcast. So I think uh, before we start, maybe Chris, you could introduce uh, a bit what the purpose of the show is. Yeah, absolutely. So the purpose of this show is to engage with people um, who have an artistic vision that they've managed to follow through for a large chunk of their lives and kind of see what motivates them how it started, why they keep going, and just kind of, you know, everyone knows that that 30 minutes on stage is the best, or when you get, in Jesse's case, when you get that perfect mix and the band is psyched and you're psyched, um, it, it's just the best feeling. But the problem is, is what most people don't fully realize is what goes into actually being able to do these things. So the idea of the podcast is to kind of pick people's brains and figure out what pushes them to just keep doing this and you know we'll we'll see where it goes from there but uh i feel like that's a pretty accurate adaptation and since jesse is a musician uh first but he is more renowned now as a <clears throat> sound engineer we're going to focus more on that but i would still like to very much start uh at the beginning so jesse gander why don't you introduce yourself all right. Well, I am Jesse, and I basically started getting involved in the music scene in about, um, or the underground music scene in about uh, 1992 or so. Um, I was about 13 years old and, um, you know, was into heavy metal and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of had an ear for, you know, sort of underground music, at least as underground as they would play on much music, you know, maybe, uh, <laughs> you know bands that are smaller than Metallica, um, but maybe bands that are bigger than local bands because um, they had a music video and whatnot. 
Um, and yeah, I just, uh, it, it wasn't, wasn't too long into high school, maybe within one week of being in high school, eighth grade, uh, for us out in Vancouver, um, that, uh, you know, we discovered that our local community center was having punk rock shows with, with local bands, um, who made demo tapes and seven inches. And, um, for, for the, at that time, it was even rare to be able to afford to, uh, to, to press a compact disc actually. So, um, you know, that was, you were pretty serious if you could press a CD in those days. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, we just got into that and, you know, for five bucks, uh, we could go to the local community center. There's a skate park there too. And we could skateboard and meet people and, um, yeah, just, just have, um, have a, have a community, have a group. So basically, um, as soon as we discovered that I, w- I went, I went head first into it and, uh, you know, uh, a couple of kids that were a little older than me, people obviously are maybe 13 and, and some of the kids that were 15 years old and that sort of thing um, said, Hey, you know, you can just book your own show. You can play in your own band. You can write your own fanzine. You can just do whatever you want. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just, uh, I had a lot of energy in those days and uh, <laughs> wanted to put it, wanted to put it to some use. So, so that, that, that was really my introduction to, to, to punk rock and underground music and that sort of thing. Okay. Was, was um, there a particular memory of the time when you're saying, Oh my God, I want to do this like uh yeah a, there was a band yeah there i would say there was two i mean the, the most uh the, the first and most profound was like the first local show i went to which was um um brand new unit uh a great <laughs> hardcore band from vancouver yeah who uh, played for you know 200 people crowned in a tiny little room um and uh you know they just ripped uh you know because they were brand new unit are a band that's as tight as green day they're as tight as descendants you know but but we're a local band and i i loved them so much and that the night it was probably a friday or saturday night that we saw them at the local community center and um then i said to my dad like i want i bought these guys seven inch um now i gotta buy a record player can you take me to the pawn shop and get a record player and the next <laughs> day my dad took me out and i probably bought a record player for 20 bucks it was actually good because that time vinyl was on its way out yeah absolutely. <laughs> right like absolutely. lps was were, were dying their last breath supposedly so <laughs> so yeah i got a good record player for 20 bucks that my dad picked out for me he likes music too and uh yeah and i bought the cub seven inch and the bnu seven inch and the spark marker seven inch and uh was just uh totally into hardcore and punk rock after that so and then a couple weeks later fugazi came um so i got to see fugazi <laughs> spark marker and mecha normal three amazing bands uh two two of for vancouver bands and uh and they played for three thousand people but it was still six bucks, uh, you yeah. know. So, and that was at the Plaza of Nations, which was like the big, uh, the big expo site. And you weren't, it, it, if you weren't there, you weren't into music, <laughs> you know. It doesn't matter if you were into grunge or punk or metal or hardcore. You were at the Fugazi show. There was absolutely there was three thousand people there for six bucks on a sunny day outside in May. You can't go wrong. <laughs> so it's yeah, amazing. it was amazing. I saw Fugazi yeah. for the first time, I think, in '91, mm-hmm. and it was life-changing yeah like, that was crazy. the whole scene and at, and at that show i handed out flyers for my bounce for a show i would have seen bnu a few months before like in the winter time and i think fugazi came in may um and uh dbs played our first show on on june 4th i think fugazi was maybe like may 24th or something like that just like a, bit, a week or two before and um yeah we just uh, i handed out uh, to every handbill uh, i had to everybody that was there and try to get them to come see my band and and uh, yeah, two hundred of them did. <laughs> so we Holy had a great, shit. yeah. So we had a great first show that was packed with people. It was great. That's yeah. amazing, man. I love Sparkmarker and I love Brand New Unit. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
Yeah, we played a strain at our first show too, which is rad. Classic what? Vancouver, straight edge hardcore. Yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who and they were killer too, like just like, you know, totally, totally heavy and uh, just simple and heavy and macho, but in a fucking rad way. It was it was cool. <laughs> yes. Strain yeah. were amazing. Yeah, totally. Um, randomly, the last time I talked about strain was with a guy in uh Chile. Oh, like cool. 2015, we were talking about Canadian hardcore, and he's like, "Oh man, one of my favorite bands was from there." I'm like, "Really? Who's that?" He's like, "Oh, Strain." Yeah, I, I see the guys around. Sean Landy uh, is a recording engineer too. Sean from Strain. So, oh, cool. so we uh, we we uh, you know, uh, once in a while we hook up, or whenever I'm recording a Straight Edge Hardcore record, he comes out and does the gang vocals or whatever. You know, we <laughs> nice. keep in touch. Yeah, him and uh, some uh, some other guys, uh, and uh, yeah, awesome. yeah, pretty good times. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So how old were you when you had, when you saw those first shows? Um, well, I, I want to say I was, I, I think maybe I was 13 when I saw Fugazi, but two weeks later I saw, I saw, I, I turned 14 because my birthday is May 26th. So, so I'm pretty sure I saw Fugazi at 13 and then like a week later, a couple of days later, I turned, I turned 14 and DBS played our first show when we were, when I was 14. Those guys were 13 though. I was one year older than everybody else in DBS. We became friends in like a split class uh, in elementary school, like a five, six split class kind of thing. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> So what yeah. did you make, you know, you're a 14 year old, you end up in this $6 show with this band Fugazi, who has this very strong ethos about mm. you know, doing yourself all ages shows. Um, what kind of effect did it have on you watching that band play and being in that environment with all these, you know, like you say, musicians and artists and people who are into music were all congregated. Uh, yeah. For me, I was just like, um, one, I mean, I was so young that I was like, man, being an adult rules. There's way more fun stuff to do when you're an adult. You know, when you can get get on the bus and go downtown and see a show, like that's that's great. Even though I was super young, um, but also, yeah, I think um, I think I just loved um, loved the fact that um, you know there, there wasn't any rules to the kind of music you could make, and um, and um, that. Uh, I kind of liked that, that I felt like the more energy you put into it, the more you could get out of it. You know, like I liked that, you know, if we take time after school to rehearse and, or write a fanzine, which we did also, um, that, you know, people will come and support it. And, and, and then we also get to have fun checking out their stuff. So, you know, I, I found it was just, um, it was just exciting. And I like, I think the community of it is the part that I, that I like the best and, and the friendships and stuff we made, like, instead of just like the three of us, like in elementary school, we were kind of mature for our ages, me and the guys from DBS, Andy and Paul, um, like we liked Metallica, you know, like on the justice for all album when we were in grade five, all the other kids, like new kids on the block, we liked, you know, Testament and overkill and suicidal tendencies and shit. So we were, our musical taste was a little bit older than the other kids in our grade, probably because of our influences from our brothers and parents and stuff like that, older brothers and parents. Um, but yeah, I just, I just liked so much that we could do, um, that we could do it ourselves. And, uh, and, um, and, and you're so immediately kind of rewarded, like, like as you said in your monologue opening it, you're 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 often not rewarded. There's a lot of hard work um, for 30 minutes of of fun at the show, but but you know that said, it, it it pays off. You know, I think it pays off in what you get out of it from friendships and stuff like that. So that was really Absolutely. obvious to me right away. Absolutely, I agree. Um, now you've referenced older brothers and parents because I know you. Um, yeah. And Tivo and I were talking about your parents. 
your dad uh was a photographer at shows like Tebow was telling me that he has he took photos of like dead Kennedys and stuff yeah. like that and you know so Not so true. your dad your dad I'm assuming was your biggest influence when it came to introducing you to music. My mom and my dad equally uh, I mean my dad is a photographer for sure so that um <clears throat> and like uh like you said but but uh I mean my mom's uh problem like re- like addiction to record collecting might even be more severe actually. Um <laughs> but uh, um but uh no they're both they're both hardcore music addicts. Um um you know my dad is a photographer, um audiophile as well, you know, like he he you know he was always tweaking his crossovers and his speakers and stuff, but but my mom was the one criticizing the sound. He was the one who was like, I think I finally got the speaker sounding good. My mom's like, it sounds harsh, you know, like uh <laughs> <laughs> two of them the two of them are both audiophiles um and um yeah they saw they saw all the classic punk rock bands uh and and you know my parents are old like they're 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 in their mid 70s so like they were old when punk rock started off they were my age you know <laughs> like my parents were as old as us when they were seeing the Ramones um not quite but they were they were yeah. 30 you know they they were teenagers they were 30 when the Ramones came out or something you know my my brother was born in, in 69, you know, so to put it into perspective. So yeah, when, when 79 came came along, I guess they were late twenties or, or early thirties, but, but they, they saw the Stooges like on their first tour through Vancouver. Like, wow. yeah, like, like bands before punk rock was a, uh, was a label. Um, but yeah, they saw Ramones and Ed Kennedy's and Clash and, you know, Bob Marley and Iggy Pop and, the Stooges and yeah, every band that you could ever wish that you could see if you could go back in time. <laughs> the Sex Pistols, like they they saw them, um, but they weren't like punks. They were just um, music uh, lovers, alter- alternative music lovers. You know, they they uh, would buy uh, Spin and Rolling Stone and you know all the Cream and all the big magazines of the seventies and, and and those magazines and any magazine that was worth half a scratch, you know, like um, um, would cover those bands too. Yeah, you know, like uh, so. So any like my my dad has an Iron Maiden record, like he has Number of the Beast, and was never a metalhead. He just was like heard that Number of the Beast was an innovative album, and that it was people were excited about the album and bought it. And I don't think he really actually liked it that much. I think heavy metal is not really something he likes. But he has a Black Sabbath album. He has an Iron Maiden album. He, he knows about it, but it's not like his favorite shit ever or anything like that um my mom is actually probably more into the aggressive punk rock like when i was a kid growing up she liked you know doa and you know dead kennedy is like she liked a little bit you know she likes the more the louder shit for sure so nice um yeah but that definitely influenced me big time because uh you know i, I had access to those records if i wanted to uh, and heavy metal kind of was a, a progression <clears throat> of punk rock you know because yeah that, that's pretty you know, standard yeah me- metal being also quite a bit bigger a scene especially at that time like you know yeah stuff yeah before warp tour and all that shit before punk was really commodified that way um metal already was you know because the 80s were just huge for metal so yeah yeah absolutely so when you started playing music your parents were obviously super supportive yeah 100 i mean i took piano lessons uh from an early age we always had a piano my parents both play music too. My mom plays the drums and uh, the guitar. My dad Ooh. plays guitar and piano. Nice. Um, so yeah, there was always instruments in the house. And both my brothers played music too. My brother, they both of them still do. Both my brothers are songwriters, uh, pretty prolific songwriters actually. So m- even more than me. Um, like uh, my brother Cody's a bass guitarist and played in a bunch of post-punk bands and stuff. Like before I was old enough to play in a band. And my brother Robbie took guitar lessons and played folk music and stuff. So yeah, everybody oh, wow. plays music in my family. Yeah. <clears throat> Man, that's amazing. 
Mm-hmm. But that's a that's a good way to it's a good introduction and a good way to start going down that path. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, yeah. both my brothers before me were already like successful. Um, like my brother Rob has a university degree and is a uh, like occupational therapist, and my brother Code Cody is uh, you know uh, an electrician at like a really high level and stuff. So because like they already both my brothers were already successful, they're like, well, let's just let Jesse run with it. You know, if he wants to get the music and. <laughs> You know, if he wants to fuck up his own life, at least we got two kids to support us when we're old, you know, so two kids with real jobs. Yeah, the old adage, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I was allowed to just play in traffic and throw my life away. So it was, uh, it was I was lucky that way. Yeah. Did they ever kind of say you should have a more traditional job or go to a traditional work route? No. No, not at all. And a lot of other people in my life did. Like uh, when I graduated high school, I was already been recording bands for five years. Like I started recording albums when I was 14 or 15. Um, so really? when I got out of high school at 18, um, all everybody in my life, including other recording engineers and, and musicians and stuff, and you know, other people I respect were like, oh, I don't get a record production. It's all going to be done with computers. It's all going to be automated. Um, you know, like CD sales are going to fall off a cliff when MP3s, you know, catch steam, blah, blah, blah. All those things are true. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't adapt within that. So, but I won't get ahead of ourselves. But my parents never said that. They were like, yeah, you know, just focus on doing what you want to do. Um, but but they also made me pay rent. Like as soon as you're out of high school, if you're gonna live at home, you gotta pay rent, you gotta pay your own bills. Like there's no free ride in my parents' house. So so I think they they installed uh like a work ethic um to me. Like, yeah, you can you can live at home and record punk bands in our basement um, you know, seven nights a week, but you gotta pay rent to live there. So, you know, so that brings me yeah. to my next question. Did you ever have like a job job or I didn't realize you'd been recording since you were 15? So were you Charlie. Yeah, I did. Okay. So. Um, yeah, like uh, I, I had a, I had a job for a couple years out of out of high school. Like um, I was um, I worked at a mattress factory uh, doing like manual labor, um, you know, stuffing like like foam into a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at like a steel uh, plant as well, like uh, like sweeping up, like doing labor. Um, worked at a couple of coffee shops as well. Like I, I got tired of doing manual labor, so I was like, you know, that doesn't pay that well. Um, and at a coffee shop. You, know, you get minimum wage, but with tips, it ended, ended up being the same price, and you get to drink coffee for free and eat sandwiches and yeah, talk to sure. people. Um, so I, I, I did that for a long time, but but um, but eventually I just got so busy um, that I was getting off work at the coffee shop. I, I started at like six a.m. and do the baking and open up the shop, obviously for people's morning coffee. Mm-hmm. And I get off work at two o'clock and start recording right away and work till nine p.m. And I just got to a point where I was so busy. Um, I got fired from the coffee shop job. I was flaking out. And uh, so I, I just really got too, bu- I got too busy to work, honestly. So, so that's, that, that's when I transitioned full time into recording. So what, so sorry, I'm just trying to figure out ages here because when I met you, that would have been like 98. 98. Yeah. So I would have been just out of high school. I graduated in 96. So okay. probably like, yeah, like probably like the summer. I mean, we probably toured with, with your bands with all the answers. Um, yeah, it would be 98. 98. Okay. 97 would probably have been the first show with Falling Sickness and Anti-Flag at Underworld. Okay. We played that show. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So we played in 97, toured in 98. Okay. It toured in 98. Okay. So let's say 90, so 97, 98, you were just working jobs. You could quit to go on tour pretty much. 
Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, okay. I just leave the coffee shop um, or quit the factory job or, or whatever yeah, okay. and go on tour for, for months on end. So yeah, I, I just saved my money and, and all that stuff. And and uh, and I was still living at home, so my my rent was only you know, two hundred bucks a month or hundred bucks a month or yeah, whatever yeah. I paid my parents to live in their basement a a token a token rent to uh, yeah. to not be a complete freeloader. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, by the time by the time I was twenty, I was I was, I mean, I think I worked my last day um, at, at the coffee shop probably when I was twenty. I, I might have just turned twenty one actually. Like I might have been. I might, I might have, I think I, I lost my job at the end of May. So, yeah. So, yeah. So basically, you know, for 20, for 20 years, 21 years, I've been, I've been self-employed now. Yeah. Very nice, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a good run. <laughs> now, um, talking to Tebow prior to this, he was saying that you wanted to focus more on your career as an engineer, which I fully have no issue with at all. So mm-hmm. to segue into that, I know that Cecil played a huge role mm-hmm. in your becoming what you are now. So at what age did you meet? Is it Cecil or Cecil? Cecil. Cecil. Yeah. Um, Cecil, Cecil be English, just so we can keep anybody checking that Cecil be English. Yeah, exactly. So um, we met Cecil English recording the first DBS album. Like um, um, we met him. Um, we were, we, for throughout the majority of DBS's career, we only played all ages shows. Mm-hmm. Again, that's kind of the part of the Fugazi uh, ethos. Um, but early on in our career, you know, when we were 13, 14, we, you know, we'd play any show we could get. So we would play um, a couple of local bars too. Plus we wanted to be grown up and cool and we hadn't quite established like what the ethos of the band would be yet either. So, um, and that, you know, doing it, we were kids doing it for kids uh, or for everybody but they have to also do it with kids. Um, that became an ethic, an ethic of the band later on. But, but, but at those days, yeah, we played a, we'd play a couple of bar shows just to, you know, whatever, get exposure or whatever. And we were playing a little bar called the hungry eye, um, on a, on like a Wednesday night. Um, um, which we actually played with, with uh, AFI and, and Swinging Utters back when they were tiny bands. Like we played with them in front of 25 people. Um, you know, like they were, they didn't have record deals yet. They were just up there looking for a local band to play with. And we set them up, um, became friends awesome. of ours after that. But, uh, but yeah, so Cecil was at the show just because he was just, he was just there to go and have a beer, you know, <laughs> he's had the night off, wanted to go have a beer and check out some bands kind of thing. Um, and he, he loved our set and came up to us and said, Hey, you know, you guys got a great energy. Like if you want a free day of studio time, um, I got one for you at my studio profile. You can come anytime. And, um, and we were like, well, we actually already have um, a free day of studio time at your place because uh, we'd won a, a high school battle of the bands where, where the prize was a free <laughs> day of profile. Yeah, Cecil was always really involved in the community and trying to get people's careers off the ground and shit. He's, he's, he's got a real strong like punk rock community ethic. And um, yeah, so, so he said, well, now you got a couple of days. And then we bought some more time and made, made Tales from the Crib, our first record. So so yeah, so I mean, I, 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 I learned a lot about my workflow from him for sure you know, and, and also just like how I approach music and, and bands and stuff like that. Nice. Now, yeah. what would you say in detail when you're saying about workflow and your approach with bands, what was your influence from Cecil? What did you learn from? Well, Cecil was very much like, um, you know, fuck what anybody thinks of your work. Fuck what anybody says, like do things your own way. Like he, Cecil, like, even though he was quite a famous recording engineer, like he recorded no means no uh, wrong. And, and why do they call me Mr. Happy, which are 
literally Sem- albums seminal that, records yeah records that sold like 500,000 copies uh, or more maybe um and he also recorded of course DOA Jello Biafra SNFU um the Subhumans like all the seminal Vancouver uh western Canadian punk bands and California bands too um beat farmers and all kinds of stuff he was um but he was just like he didn't play into the Vancouver music industry game like back in those days even more so than now like Vancouver actually had a music industry like there was the people that managed like Brian Adams and stuff like that they had big companies and put on music festivals and like actually like tried to kind of run the scene in a kind of uh you know professional sort of way but Cecil's just such a punk guy like he was from the original punk rock scene he did live sound and all the demos in in 78 77 like he was he was there at the beginning of doa and subhumans and all these amazing seminal bands um so so he just he didn't play into those guys uh world and, and they didn't like him as a result of it because He's like, oh, we're going to charge whatever prices we feel is right. We're going to work with the bands we like, you know, and and um, he just was never a part of that. And and I think as a result of that, I, I kind of early on, I've never been a part of that community either. Like, I, I don't I don't really know the people that operate in, in, in my community, um, like in the other recording scene. I, I do my own thing, uh, run my own studio with my own gear. Um and that's kind of, I think that's one of the main things I kind of learned from him. I, I mean, I don't know if that's good advice or not. I, I, I don't really... You know, I think there's pros and cons. There's there's pros to to playing the game too, um, but uh, but yeah, I, I always do a Cecil does. So it's like you work with the bands directly. You don't work with the managers or the labels. Like you're not trying to court people or mm-hmm. try to solicit uh, gigs. You you just work hard and people come to you and you build a community. Like that's that's how I run my studio too. Now on a purely creative basis, um, just for clarification, now his stance on this affecting yours now how does that come into play with like a producer role well that's that's a good question and it's something that i i you know i'm I'm still trying to navigate what the sweet spot is um with that like like generally my productions have been like i help you out because we help each other out you know like it hasn't been a there hasn't been a lot of like monetary exchange beyond the labor of me recording a record um and in some cases, you know, that's ended up, you know, really working again, not working against me, but certainly not working for me. Um, so how to kind of balance um, the kind of DIY punk rock uh, ethics of kind of everybody helping and supporting one another and money is sort of secondary to that, to the kind of more corporate world um, that I also dabble in now, too. Um, because some of the underground bands I recorded got big and now are part of that world is, is something that I, I haven't quite figured out how to, how to manage yet. But, um, but I have good friends, um, um, that, that, that helped me with that as well. Like, uh, my pal John, especially from fire and the radio helps me with, he, he's more sensitive to those types of scenes and kind of how to kind of, uh, understand punk rock and or be punk rock but still also make a living um, and, and be treated fairly so so that's something that I'm, I'm learning about and and I have it kind of ingrained in me the the Fugazi ethic like no fuck this it's about six bucks you know but mm-hmm. even though like there's other people that you know like when I charge a band more money other people um benefit too right like for example I've, I've we have, t- I have two great young engineers in the studio um, on a side note, both of which are, are women that are that are working hard to become um, 
popular recording engineers in their own right. And when I make more money, I can pay them more money um, to do gigs, to assist uh, them, to you know learn more and develop their careers too, and pass, and, and share that information like Cecil shared with me. So, so yeah. you know, it's it's yeah, it's not like when I when I when I make more money, I I buy more jewelry or something. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> like the money's gonna the money goes back into the pockets of the music scene somehow, you know, or, or even I'm buying equipment to upgrade the studio. So my clients get better sound, you know, yeah. or again, like the young engineers, like, like Marisa and, and Emily um, have better mics to record their bands with, you know, like everybody kind of wins. Right. But, but uh, yeah, no, for know. sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how to balance it yet. I'm, 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 I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let me ask you, uh, Technical yet progressive question. Mm-hmm. Talk us through how you started working, going from your basement to studio, 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 to end up where you are now. Yeah. So, like for me, um, because I never worked at big studios, um, I mean, I never really worked at any really small studios except for maybe a couple. Um, I, I really started with just my own gear. Like uh, I started so young and I worked all through high school. Like I'd work every weekend in high school. I was one of those kids. So it's um, I was a janitor uh, on Saturdays and Sundays. So I actually got paid okay. You know, I got paid 17 bucks an hour, which was like pretty good for me as a kid, right? In those days, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I do, do, do laboring <laughs> and, and whatever. So I'd spend all the money on microphones and mixers and stuff like that. And and once the software and computers caught up so that you could actually like do a 24 track recording without owning a 24 track tape machine, which is a $50,000 investment basically, or was in those days, um, you know, I would, I would, um, just buy my own equipment and I, I would just put up with the fidelity. I'd put up with the shitty recording. Like I'd be like, Oh, you know, it's this cold digital cheap recording through a shitty, like use sure mic that I use for live sound, you know, people slobber all over it. Like <laughs> I just be like, that's good enough. Um, and Cecil would lend me his good mics. Like if I had to record drums, um, he'd lend me good mics for the cymbals, you know, so you don't have shit cymbal sounds, you know, yeah. that's, that's a, that's a part of recording that you get the cymbal sounding good. You're, the clarity of record is just going to sound a lot better. Um, or he lent me a kick drum microphone. Actually, my brother had a kick drum microphone because he was a bass player and often bass microphones work well on kick. Um, and he had a bass microphone that he'd lend me. Um, so I just really put up with that stuff and just charge cheap rates, just charge 10 bucks an hour. I was like, I make a 10 bucks out of the coffee shop. I'd rather be recording. So I would uh, just charge 10 bucks an hour be like, yeah, anytime I'm not uh, serving cappuccinos I'm, I'm recording. So uh, this, this is in this- your parents' basement. Yeah, in my parents' basement. Both my brothers were older, so they moved out. And my parents let me turn like their bedrooms down the hall from mine into the um, you know, they'd that'd be the tracking room and then my bedroom would be the control room. And I'd run a snake down the hall, basically. Um yeah, yeah, for real. And and then I had a closet, you know, for the bass amp or whatever. And and yeah, and I'd also record tons of hip hop in those days, which don't need a lot of space. You know, you just record a vocal, right? So you can really you can record hip hop in a ba- in a bedroom. I mean like at Billie Eilish or something, you know, she's got like, yeah. the top album in the world recorded in the bedroom. Um, you know, so if you're creative and you know how to use software, um, you could do that. And in those days, the software was primitive, but you could still squeeze out a good recording. And um, yeah, so I just do that. And, and all the money, I mean, still to this day, all the money I make, I put back into the place. I don't, I don't, I've never saved a dime. Like literally I have no savings. I just put all the money back into buying microphones, upgrading software, shit like that. So, so after 20 years of that, now, now I'm working in a massive studio that's fully outfitted with all the best shit basically. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you went from 
your basement to opening a studio or going to work at a studio or yeah basically opening my own really like again this is all cecil so i went from my parents bedrooms you know in my parents basement to my own house where my roommates would let me rent a few rooms and record again you know band in the one bedroom control room in the other bedroom and then sometimes i tracked drums at profile cecil studio and he'd give me a cheap rate and then profile had a little b room a little like a small studio that they built a secondary studio and then cecil rented that to me for cheap like you know like a thousand bucks a month which is Cheap oh, wow. for Vancouver, which, yeah. which is an expensive, expensive city to live in. Um, so I did that. And then, and then you know, I, I was having a lot of success with that studio. I recorded Three Inches of Blood's first albums there. Um, lots of hardcore records there, like Blue Monday, Go It Alone, uh, Burden, um, like all the kind of early, wow. like straight edge hardcore bands and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, and other bands that went on to become pretty popular too, or, or had musicians in it that became popular. So I started doing all that stuff. And, and then there was another small studio that was also, it was a basement studio called The Hive, um, a guy named Colin Stewart. And, um, you know, this equipment's so expensive um, that we just started sharing equipment. Like I had better mixing equipment, like I had better um, compressors and mic preamps and stuff, but Colin had better microphones. So him and I would start being like, hey, I'll lend you my compressors when you're mixing, you lend me your mics when I'm recording. And we, we were like, hey, instead of being co competitors, everybody viewed us as competitors. We're like, instead of being competitors, let's just share our gear and we'll both make better <coughs> records and um, so he started out growing his basement and just um, was like hey I found a big commercial studio that went out of business um, and I want to take it over but the rent is you know three thousand bucks a month not a thousand bucks a month you know like what I was paying he's like so if you and Stu McKillop will shut down your studio and and uh, join us at, at our big studio we'll split the time down the middle and split the rent so so that's what we did and we opened up the hive which was which we did for 10 years amazing yeah and and the hive was just more successful again like we did androids black mountain lady hawk white lung um oh, wow. you know basically okay. bas yeah basically started all the all the bands that destroyer uh a lot of the a lot of the bands that became influential in vancouver uh, yeah, her. absolutely. Now, yeah. would you, would you? I mean, you. Tebow said at the beginning you've done six hundred records by five hundred bands, so yeah. you were never lacking for work. Would did that come from your involvement uh, with DBS and subsequent bands, or at what point did it become uh, your reputation for recording, or was that just kind of a thing from the beginning? Both. Um, like, there's definitely some bands that came to me because they just wanted to work with me because they like DBS and. Also, I recorded the last DBS record, so that helped okay. get my foot in the door because people could be like, people who checked out my band's last record, which a few thousand people did, um, you know, they could choose to record with me as well. Um, but then a lot of, but actually it was really more just from the recording and... Um, I mean, these days I'm much more known as a recording engineer than a musician, so so over the years, my 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 uh, my fame as a musician has dwindled and my, my, my <laughs> fame as a recording recording engineer has grown a lot. So, so yeah, it was a bit of both but early, early on. It was definitely some people that were like, but, but all through DBS, I recorded bands all through DBS. I did live sound and put on shows. Um, I was involved. Yeah. So everybody knew I was a technical guy, um, early on. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And how did you meet up with Stu? Like I've got to, how you met up with Cecil, how you met up with, uh, mm -hmm. the guy from the hive. How did you meet up with Stu? Cause I know you're still with Stu now. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like Stu, um, I recorded his band uh, and this week with knives they were called. Um, and, um, yeah, and he was starting to to record bands too. He worked at Long and McQuaid. So he was spending all his profits working Long and McQuaid on gear and stuff like that. And I was working too much in those days. Like I was, uh, I was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day recording bands, uh, like had no life. Um, uh, one period of time, I worked for three months straight without a day off, like 90 day, nine, 90 twelves in a row of recording. Um, you still have ears. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't listen that loud. <laughs> That's part of it. Uh, wear earplugs at all shows and all band practices. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, yeah, I did 90, I did 90 twelves in a row. Like me and my girlfriend broke up. Like there was like, I had no life. Uh, just that. Um and um yeah so i was just like i need to start taking two days off a week and Stu was working along mcquaid five days a week so um he had sundays and wednesdays off and uh and i was like hey man if you want to work in my studio on sundays and wednesdays i'll take the day <laughs> off um i'll give you the day for cheap 100 bucks a day or whatever and and you know he started investing in gear you know he, he liked the mastering side of it right away so he bought um like a mastering compressor and limiter and stuff and you know, and started doing my mastering for me. And yeah, early on, we just had a good rhythm with one another. And um, yeah, I, I basically one night, I remember I was so burnt out. I was just, uh, I used to, I lived in the West End for a summer, which like my studios have always been East Van or, or even Burnaby for the hives. But I lived in the West End uh, for six months down by the beach, uh, which was super nice. And I'd ride my bike up to Commercial Drive where my studio was. And I remember just being so tired and burnt out, like riding my bike uh, down the seawall. Uh, heading home and I was just I got off my bike and I, I called Stu and I was like man you got to come work for me like I know you're into recording you know don't do it in your house anymore do it come into come to my studio and work two days a week and yeah so so that was just he was like yeah fuck yeah I'm down so yeah that's an important that point Jesse you know when you're passionate about what you do and you're working day in and day out you say three months straight how did you find over the years the balance between you know your work and what you love doing which i know you're married uh you have you're also yeah. you have you know you play music how do you balance everything out like where do you find the balance uh yeah i don't have any uh good balance it's it's not in balance <laughs> yet um like i mean i was five minutes late to this zoom interview because it's sunday and i'm at home today it's my day off and i'm just i was mixing right to the point that i called you and as soon as the zoom calls done i'm back to mixing all day on my day off I'll go see a friend for an hour a day uh, to give her her birthday present. And then I'll come back. I'll mix more Then I have a zoom meeting with a band uh, that I'm working with all summer. Um, and then I'll go back and mix, I'll cook dinner, mix, and then go buy groceries and then mix some more. Yeah, no, I, there's no balance at all. It sucks. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, it's my passion, but, um, but yeah, like I try, I take days off. I take weekends off these days. Um, most of the time, like I mostly work Monday to Friday. So I get time to hang out with, with my wife, Ashley and stuff. And, and she's tolerant of my work uh, load, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, like, you know, if I was working 40 hours a week, it'd be balanced, you know, but, uh, but I work, I, I generally work 60 hours a week, um, you know, pretty much. So yeah, it's not imbalanced. <laughs> you get tired? Nope. How do you not get tired? <laughs> <laughs> you lie. Uh, ah, I don't I, know. Uh, I don't know. Hey, yeah, it's a good, no, how do you tired. not get tired? How do you not get well, I, uh, uh, I do get tired, but, um, and I do take days off. I, I, I set aside times of the year that I take time off, like, especially in the summer, like I do a solid, I, do, I take a solid week off in August, solid week off in July. Um, 
when I do have time, I, I set time aside to, to, to go on vacation. Like I set time aside. I mean, not that, you know, this year I didn't go anywhere. I just worked all year, but, um, but generally, I mean, we're lucky we're snowbirds. We go down to Mexico for a week in the winter time. Um, you know, uh, that makes a big difference to, to me. And, um, also I feel like playing in a band is really recharging for me. Like, uh, often I'll work with a band for 10 hours a day and then at nine o'clock I'll be like, okay, guys, you guys got to get out. This day's done. Um, and they're like, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, I'm going to band practice right now. Um, so I, I go right to band practice. I'm like, you're going to do more music for three hours right now. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it's different though. It's, it's completely recharges me. It, uh, it grounds me and, and, and what I love about music too, outside of the technical side of it. Um, I understand that 100%. <laughs> yeah. And I ride my bike, uh, to band practice. I ride my bike on my days off. Like when I do work from home, I have a home studio too. I always ride my bike for a solid hour. Like I do 25 K on my bicycle, um, every sunny day that I got the day off, even if it means I'm late on my work. Um, so yeah, exercise and, um, you know, and for me, I mean, everybody's got their own habits, lifestyles, but I drink two glasses of wine at the end of the day and like that makes me feel better. So <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's what I do. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I work too. I, you know, I try to eat well and, and that kind of stuff. And I try to get a good night's sleep and, uh, and all those things. So, um, but yeah, I, mainly though, yeah. Cycling. And, and in the summertime, I do a lot of really like long hikes. I go into the backwoods um, for like, you know, like with, I go, I go backpacking in the back country for, you know, four or five days at a time where there's just no sound, but the pine needles and the birds, you know, and yeah. really rest up. Um, so I have a lot of hobbies that aren't music and, and I, and I just try to make time for them and, and playing my own music. And then, and then, then I don't get burned out on recording. And that's a trick that I learned from uh, reading uh, Daniel Lanois book and hearing Daniel Lanois talk as well on like the CBC. He's just like, he plays his own music. So he doesn't get burnt up producing other people's music. Hmm. Um, keeps them charged, keeps them fresh. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. it's a good good philosophy that I that, that when I heard him interviewed on you know Q whatever it was years ago, I was like took that philosophy I was like yeah that's that's that is it yeah you gotta you gotta do music for your own creative brain too you know, I, man I get that hundred percent it's the only thing that keeps me sane mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. yeah, but now I I know you travel fairly regularly f- to record bands mm-hmm. um, you were just in Bulgaria last yeah. Now, yeah, when, in Bulgaria. Um, when yeah, you do those and, trips, do you give yourself like extra time on those trips? Yes. To okay, good. Yeah, totally. I love it. Um, you know, Bulgaria was 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 an awesome one. For example, one of my favorite ones. Just I haven't been to Eastern Europe that much, um, or really spent much time in the Balkans. But um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I flew in and spent. Uh, I mean, two days just to get over jet lag, and and I was with the band the whole time, so it's just a day to kind of chill out and try to get over jet lag because it's you know ten hour time difference in Bulgaria. Um, but then at the end of it, yeah, actually the band were super rad. Um, they kind of offered, and I was going to sort of ask as well, um, but they were like, "Hey, by the way, you know, once the recording's done, you know, we spent ten days working on the record, kind of thing. We took one day off. There was a festival. It was in a small town, so I got to experience some Bulgarian, you know, culture, and um, it was sort of their Independence Day." Um, and, you know, try all the good food and meet the guy's grandparents <laughs> and stuff and eat baklava and like, yeah, it was awesome. Um, and then, you know, we finished up the record and, and then the guys uh, emailed me uh, before I went and said, Hey, just so you know, like we, we actually have a car and, um, you know, if you want to do a little road trip around Bulgaria, we'd be happy to show you around. Cause I'd kind of acquired, I said, how's the train system in Bulgaria is it better to take the bus. Like I want to go visit Sofia and Plovdiv and some of the other cities. And, uh, and uh, they're like, Oh yeah, well, you know, they said, we're going to, we were going to offer you, you know, if you want to, um, 
if you want to do a three, four day road trip, we'll show you some cool spots. And I was like, Oh, great. I said, man, I'll pay for the gas. If you guys want to drive me around, they're like, Oh man, we got it. Um, so yeah, I got, I got to go and have, have, you know, be, be a tourist with a good guide. So yeah, that's really fun. And, and in Cuba, uh, I was there for the whole month. So, um, I went to Cuba, spent a couple of days just chilling out and swimming on the beaches and stuff. Obviously. I mean, you know, yeah, you don't yeah. want to tour in the Caribbean and not go <laughs> for a dip, you know what I mean? Like, you know, for sure, man. so, so yeah, we spent two, three days just, um, um, swimming and partying and, and, and eating and eating food and stuff. And, and then, uh, then I recorded for about a week. I had two bands come from different cities, one band from Trinidad, uh, Arabio from Trinidad, like a hardcore band. And then, uh, a, a Dick talks from uh, Santa Clara, they uh, hitchhiked down to Trinidad and we, uh, I recorded them for, for a week. And then we got, then, then our guitar player flew down and he joined us. And then we toured with those guys for 12 days and did a bunch of punk rock shows to wrap it up. That's so and amazing. Then spent, yeah. Then spent two days at the end also, uh, yeah, drinking some ice on the beach. So, so yeah, we, uh, we had, yeah, it was a whole month I was there in total, which was very good. <laughs> yeah, so really what was fun. it like touring Cuba? Because I mean, there's not many bands, at least Canadian bands or North American bands that could say they've toured Cuba. Yeah, it's like uh, it brought me the same energy as uh, those early punk rock shows, C and B and U and Spark Marker in in '92. It was kids were so fresh and enthusiastic and just stoked on punk rock and open minded. You know, not um, not so um, not into the minutia of the sub genres. Like, I don't listen to crust punk. I only listen to street punk. Or you know, like the people aren't obsessed about the, yeah, the yeah. details. They're they're just glad um, that they have some punk rock to play to mosh pits every night um you know um also it's, it's cuba so like there's way more rules because it's you know like a communist country but there's also way less like like cuba's got way more rules when it comes to the government and all this stuff but then they have way less rules when it comes to like partying and like drink a beer at all four in the morning like so it's like it's it's that kind of a place like their culture um is is they, they have a lot of music and social activity like it's a big part of cuban life you know whereas like i think north american life is very like especially canadian life is like very capitalistic like making and spending money is like a real focus of our like weekends here Absolutely. whereas in cuba whereas in cuba like getting together with your family and having like a nice time and like in the park is a more important part of their lives versus capitalism, which there's yeah. a lot less of there. And that's so, interesting because you yeah. went to Cuba. I'm sure this wasn't a money grabbing, uh, no. experience of recording Cuban bands. I mean, uh, yeah, we did it on the barter system. So basically I said, Hey, you guys book the tour and I'll record your bands for free and, br and bring the recordings back to Canada and mix them for free. And, um, but you book all the tour, do all the legwork to set up all the shows and, uh, book all the hostels, book all that kind of stuff. Like, so yeah, William, the uh, guitar player in, um, in, uh, in, uh, Arabio, he also, uh, had a bit of a government role. He worked for the youth center. So was able to get me the cultural visas to do it. Cause you know, you get, you step off the plane and the military, you know, military guys greeted me before I even went, I never got a chance to go through immigration. The guys just came and were like, okay, what's up with your microphones? What's up with your, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't, they didn't speak English. I don't speak Spanish. So we just like 
but they but they were helpful. They they saw the the the, the cultural visa and you know did did their best to help me um, just walk basically walk through the border because I had the paperwork and they looked at my microphones and stuff. I had to declare that they weren't wireless. They they didn't want any wireless transmitters. Um, so people like they don't want people transmitting radio waves to Florida or you know making plans yeah. um, defection or what like who knows like I don't it's not my business to to know. But um, but my microphones were of course all regular recording microphones which are which are never wireless so so they weren't uptight about that it was just a bunch of sm57s and regular crap like that so i didn't bring anything fancy um so yeah so so yeah i so i said to heal yeah you guys i mean booking your tours a ton of work it's a pain in the ass um they also <laughs> did the visas they booked the hotels they did everything and again yeah we 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 paid for the gas and we snuck an american band in too we brought an american band up to toronto a band from milwaukee called uh-oh um uh, cool, really cool guys and girls, and uh, um, and they they flew because the states at that time, this is before Obama like loosened the rules, and then Trump reversed those loosenings. Um, uh, so we we brought them down on a WestJet flight from Toronto, and, and that was great. So we had the four bands, and we rented the school bus, and yeah, we paid the gas. It was you know, it wasn't too much for the gas. It was not a very big island, so uh, not big compared to Canada. <laughs> a couple hundred bucks uh, in gas so um yeah and, and uh you know we all try to contribute too you know we tried to we, we you know we they they, they they brought the rum we brought the beer you know <laughs> you know, just, you know just, just everybody contributed to the tour and and i did the recordings and yeah it worked out great it was a great experience and yeah. And that's it. It's a great experience. And coming from a, you know, like saying, hey, we have an opportunity to go to Cuba. They want me to record. Let's barter so we can tour, visit yeah. Cuba for a month. I mean, everyone wins. Everybody wins. I know yeah. you brought the Cuban band to Vancouver, didn't you? Yeah, well, not me personally, but um, but our friend uh, Drew McIntosh from Edmonton, he started up a little organization called Solidarity Rock, and um, and William from Arabio had Solidarity Rock Cuba, and he had Solidarity Rock Edmonton or Canada, so they um, they also helped getting the cultural visas to get the Cubans up here to tour as well. Um, so yeah, we brought them up twice and and put on their shows here and stuff like that. So that was a great experience for them, like. Yeah, they'd never left. Uh, only one of them had ever left uh, Cuba before. William had been to Spain uh, and maybe worked in Spain for a summer or something like that. Um, but the other guys had never left, uh, never left Cuba. So that was a big experience for them to come to Canada. Mind, a mind fuck for them. So it was and great. they got to play with Agnostic Front, no? Yeah, exactly. And they got to play yeah. with Agnostic Front in New York. And um, yeah, and uh, uh, is it Vinny? Is it singer of Agnostic mm-hmm. Front? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, Vinny's uh, he the guitar player. Guitar player. Oh yeah, he led in the gear. Of, who's the singer of Agnostic Front again? Roger. 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 Yeah, Roger. Um, also, uh, him and I uh, collaborated on the recording, and he did a background vocal that he recorded in New York, and then sent it to me, and I got to mix in Roger singing with uh, with their band. That's uh, amazing. On a, on a track, I got to send it back to Cuba, and their minds were fucking blown. And, <laughs> And when they came to New York, they came with nothing in their hands. You know, they just flew on the plane. They didn't bring, they brought their guitars and maybe like a, you know, their distortion pedal or something. But, you know, Agnostic Front supplied the gear and they got to play uh, the um, the big hardcore festival, Black and Blue Ball in New York City. Uh, they got wow. to play that with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty exciting time. <laughs> so mine was blown. No shit. Yeah. That's rad. Yeah. I only have yeah, one. So, I only have one other friends. I'm one of. The, I only know one other band that got to play in Cuba, and it was no recording, but it's still much. They're from Switzerland, so they had to get oh, yeah. a cultural visa, and yeah. they hooked up with bands from there. And they did. I think they played like ten shows. Yeah, and, so we did too. We we did ten shows. Yeah, yeah and it was we just did ten. party bus and. 
Yeah, was it? it was probably the same bus, uh, honestly. Like, there's this sort of <laughs> one bus. Okay. It's all covered with, like, Che Guevara, like, uh, independence kind of graffiti and stuff. And you, you cruise around. It's an old school bus. And it comes with a driver, you know. I think we paid, like, I don't know what it was, maybe um, 50 or 100 bucks a day. And, and you get you get a man to drive you on the bus. And, and he also is the mechanic, and, you know, because the bus is breaking down. And, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it, was, it was like another state of mind, if you've seen that, only in Cuba style. So <laughs> it was exactly the same as another state of mind. It was only instead of youth brigade, uh, you know, it was a Dick Dox and Arabia. Uh, yeah, it was great, great times and social distortion. But now, uh, yeah. Now, now, what year would that was that? Uh, so that was, I think it was 20, um, I think it was 2013. That we did yeah. that, yeah, yeah, and I brought a laptop down and yeah, you know, some mics and stuff. So, yeah, then they supplied all the stands and cables and all that kind of stuff. So I yeah, just brought the, the basics, yeah. Nice. Yeah, we had so much fun and yeah, trying to learn to speak Spanish and then trying to learn to speak English. It was hilarious, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, yeah, we had, we, had, we had a riot. Yeah, and all the guys are just like our friends in Canada and the scene, like all just total total positive guys. <laughs> you know, love yeah. to have fun and party and that's just great. Well. I mean, one of, one of the things I really like about your way of thinking, which is similar to mine and a lot of our common friends, is that, you know, you had bandmates who were like, look, guys, I have this opportunity to go to Cuba to record these bands and they'll book a tour for us. And I know that there's no money. Yeah, for sure. For anybody. Yeah. So yeah. You, you're going to pay your own way, but we're going to do a 10-day tour in Cuba and yeah, have a blast. Exactly. And your bandmates were like, done, I'm in. Yeah, it's like the funnest, coolest vacation ever, basically. Exactly. Like, yeah, like it's it's incredible. Yeah, and it's all, and what a great country to do it in because you know every city is so cool. Like we played uh, downtown Havana in a botanical garden, like in the center of the city, like outside, oh. like with like beautiful like tropical plants, like over top of the stage, as like a canopy with like two hundred punks. Like you know, you just like you can't have more fun. There's especially right. like at the time we're in now where there's no fun left. Like, like th those days are yeah. like the funnest, you know, like I, it's, it's, a, it's, it felt like a dream at the time and even more so now. Yeah. When, when did, when did you make the, the change from touring to tourcations? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, all my, all our tours kind of were, I mean, DBS didn't make any money either. So, you know, those were vacations in a way too. Um, I mean, had the goal of promoting records and promoting our band and stuff like that. But I mean, I was just really doing it just to meet people and stuff like that. Like if I wanted DBS to be a more famous band, then um, we had the opportunity early on to take the corporate route. We could have been a warp Tour band or, you know, been like we were much music darlings for a, a, uh, for a hot minute um you know in 2005 or something um and at that point in time we could have like installed ourselves into the, the kind of corporate punk rock culture which was certainly blossoming with uh, with green day's popularity and uh, an offspring and all that kind of stuff and there's a bit of that but you know we just um because we were into underground music underground punk rock to us like I mean, we like Green Day. Like, we I like their music. Uh, the offspring, I can't say I like their music, but, but, um, but, but, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't mind being in their shoes financially. Sure, who, who would complain about that? But yeah, of course. But I just like the the music I like was cooler. I was just like, I, I just preferred um, Avail and you know, like uh, maybe and Jawbreaker uh, before they sold out, which quote unquote sold out. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, like I, I, so I think we just we just felt like we were. Um, it was cooler for us to be part of an underground scene, and in a way, we actually desperately wanted to shed. Um, 
any uh, identity as like a corporate punk rock band. Uh, um, and as a result of that, we, we, we stopped playing bar shows, stopped doing big ticketed shows, insisted on doing all ages shows for six bucks and working with local promoters and touring in our van and, 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 you know, and got to tour with anti-flag before they were a big band, um, you know, before they, you know, did the major label thing, all that stuff too. And we just, I mean, I think our songs were there and our band was a good band that we could have been that kind of band. But honestly, we were all, we kind of, we just thought we were hot shit and didn't have to do that. You know, we just thought, we just thought we were, we, we thought we were too cool for that, to be honest with you. And, um, and I don't regret that uh, decision at all. I, I don't wish I was still uh, touring in that band. Like, um, I think it's fucking awesome. Those people I stuck with it. I mean, bands like Andy Plague, who I have a deep respect for and, and love for as people and as musicians. Um, and that's rad that they make a career out of their band. Um, but, but we didn't want to make a career out of our band. It's not that we couldn't or that we weren't good enough. We just, we just, we wanted to be a big underground band, but we didn't want to be a, a um, we, we didn't really want to be a warped tour band. Not to say we would have said no if that had been offered. That wasn't necessarily like, uh, a politic but but it wasn't our mission objective packing every single basement in the world definitely would have been though if we could have been <laughs> 200 people at a house party every single night absolutely we would have done it well, that's, that's what we were trying to achieve <laughs> you know for sure uh, we were exactly the same man and yeah. it, it's funny uh, um you probably won't remember this i forget where the hell we were maybe chicago and we had just had a couple of it wasn't Chicago because our shows there were always good. I don't know where it was. We did. We had a couple shitty shows. Yeah. And um, you and I were just talking one night, and you're just like, "Man, fuck the money, fuck everything else, fuck it. Mm. It's good times. It's just got to be good times." And yeah, I, I, I mean, I agreed with you because we were in the same boat. But there was something about that conversation that evening and i don't even know if you remember that i told you this but i went yeah. back to montreal and got that tattooed on me i know you do yeah yeah no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm aware yeah that is a 100 percent jesse gander inspired tattoo yeah well i mean i try to bring that to the recording sessions now too like i um you know i i need to charge a certain amount it's we, we live in an expensive time and in an expensive country um you know expensive everything in cities yeah an expensive Indeed. city yeah and, and, this, and this expensive city has afforded me a living for 20 years you know like mm. yeah bitch all you want about how expensive vancouver is but you know the vibrant large large art scene of people that are rebelling against money and doing art for art's sake is, is massive. It's underrepresented and underknown um in, uh, around the world and it's afforded me a living for 20 plus years now right so so it's that 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 kind of ethic goes through this whole city like the metal bands i record the punk bands record they're all punk like like the, the even the, the folk people and the classical musicians i record jazz the jazz people in vancouver are all punk all of them have underground venues all of them are charging six bucks for their shows trying to make community um you know, the city always gets this no fun city reputation. That's written by people that don't know where the underground art is happening because they're not involving themselves in the scene. And it's always like, you know, that. yeah, yeah. I, I don't want it to be like an elitist thing where it's like, oh, you're just not cool enough to know where the fucking shows happen. Um, you can find out, especially now. I mean, you can go on Facebook and find out. But, um, but um, you know, it's just that's just the way it's always been. And it was that way in the 70s with DOA. You know, DOA was playing the Japanese hall, the Russian hall, all the little weird venues. They were playing the big bars. They were, they were playing the weirdo places that you scratch out of show out of, you know, with shit sound and everything. Same as us. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I take that to my sessions now where it's like I, I do 
I, I, there's a, there's a few stressful projects that, that happen, you know, recordings can be stressful for people at times, but you know, I feel like with certain kind of parameters and a certain attitude going into it, it doesn't have to be, you know, definitely doesn't have to be, it can actually be the funnest part of being in a band recording. If you, if you go into it with, with the right attitude and if you're relaxed. How do you do that as a recording engineer and you have a band who, I don't know, stressed out, anxious about doing it right or, uh, and what's your role in kind of having them have a good time? For me, it's, uh, it's like, you know, be in, be in control of the, of the technology. Like, like sometimes the technology wants to screw with you. Sometimes you have Murphy's law or whatever. And, uh, and, and shit goes a little sideways on recordings. Um, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Lots of equipment that could break down and so on. Uh, computers that crash and all the regular crap. Um, but, uh, that, that happens in a, in a, in a, in a, te in a technological field. But, um, but I just try to be like, I got this, you know, like, like, like be efficient, be fast, um, try to make decisions quickly. Um, and, um, you know, and for me also, like I find with bands, there's, there's personality traits that you start to spot earlier on, like often the guy or girl in the band that's quiet, um, actually has really big ideas, but they're kind of like the introverted person that, you know, doesn't quite, uh, hasn't found their voice to share them. And yet sometimes there's someone in the band who's got a bigger voice and a bigger ego. Um, and that also has good ideas, but maybe aren't the only good ideas in the band, but they speak the loudest. So often if I kind of get a sense of that, then, then when, when, when the questions of, of the direction for the recording or the production of the sound come up, I'll be like, I'll answer that person's question, but then I'll reach out to the other person and be like, oh, what do you think of this? You know, like try to empower um, the person in the band with a smaller voice um, and, and make sure that everybody's on the same page. You know, if you, if you sense worry or, or concern in people, just like give them a chance to, to vent their ideas uh, right away. And then, and then you can know you're not moving along in a direction that you're going to have to backtrack in later on. Like I just try to get a feel for, for people. And cause, cause yeah, it's like, everybody's like people's talent with music or with art um, is not related to their, like um, in how they carry themselves as, as people on the outside often. So, mm -hmm. so, so a lot of those people need just a, need to have a, 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 yeah, a moment to, to voice their, their ideas. And then, and then if you can find a balance between those two people, then usually there's a sweet spot for the sound, you know, a sweet spot for the direction of the record. So that's part of it, you know, and, and also like, I just like, I, I don't go into a one, uh, the session with a one size fits all um, approach. Like there's a, there's a culture in recording and I feel like this is often perpetuated in recording schools where things have to be done a certain way. First, you have to establish the tempo of the click and the drummer has to play to it. And if they can't play to it, you fire them or you send them back to practice or hire a session drummer. Like you just start your record with conflict. If you can't, if you can't do it, conflict is the, yeah, is yeah. the, is the, is, you know, and I'm just like, Hey, what kind of record are we trying to make? Are we trying to make, um, are we trying to make a Nickelback? What does that be something shit like that? Are we trying to make Green Day or are we trying to make Guided by Voices? Because if we're trying to make Guided by Voices, we don't have to worry about the click. If you can't play to the click or you haven't rehearsed to that, that doesn't mean you're going to make shit rock music. You know, like a lot of cool bands didn't. Like, are we trying to make Neutral Milk Hotel or are we trying to make, um, you know, um, uh, um, Mumford and Sons, <laughs> you know, like, are we trying to make something that's been polished to absolute minutia or are we trying to let rawness and, and spontaneity guide us? And both are good. I, I mean, 
you know, both of those types of production aesthetics can great, yield great results that people love. But, but, but let's also like if we're going to try to make Green Day, but if you're at the ability of of playing, you know, Minor Threat or something like that, like if you're a scrappier <laughs> band, well, then let's let's be realistic about what we're trying to do and let's book the amount of time accordingly to make that type of project and, and yeah. embrace it and let it rule. Who wishes that Minor Threat was done to a click and there wasn't any duffed chords? Like nobody wishes that. Fuck that. <laughs> you know, yeah. right? So, but then, I, but then records that are polished to beautiful perfection, like Sunny Day Real Estate Diary or, you know, or Jawbreaker Dear You, like those are also awesome records that I wouldn't change. I love their, their clean and, and mindful approach. <laughs> you know, that's awesome too. But I also like Neutral Milk Hotel, where it's like, let's just fucking crank it out. All emotion, no clarity. You know, that's awesome, too. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that harkens back to your um, wide, varying musical tastes. You know, like you say, when you started out, you're doing punk records, hip-hop records, metal mm-hmm. records. You know, that's if, if you're just starting out doing all that stuff, you have the tools mentally to, to adapt to whatever comes to you. Well, and that's just it is that because I like all those different <clears throat> kinds of music. Also, I get it. Like, like there's a lot of producers in my community that are like, I want to be the best, you know, metal producer ever. And I'm going to do it the way that it's done. Like, this is the way that Mashuga and Gojira and, you know, whoever does it. And we're going to do it this way. And if you, if you can't drum that way, um, then we're going to edit it so that you sound like you drummed that way. And I know how to do that too. Um, and sometimes when bands want to do that, yeah, sure, let's make, let's make that type of aesthetic for sure. Uh, I like those bands, but, but, but some bands that just want to do something super raw and crazy, like we're like, oh, we wanted to sound more like, you know, um, some obscure band from whatever, from Norway from the 90s or something, you know, like, <laughs> like let's, you know, that's, that's a thing too. And I, and I've listened to that music too. So, so I'm not, I'm not embarrassed or like, I'm not, I'm not shy to be like, Hey, this can be lo-fi and that might actually be cooler. And that really all adds up to me being a lot busier and sustaining myself and sustaining a living way better because instead of having to find bands that fit into my approach, I'll adapt my approach to whatever the band wants as best as I know how, and sometimes I sometimes I, I stumble. You know, some bands just you know, there's the odd time, just kind of doesn't add up, or my approach doesn't work. You know, there's been a couple of times where I'm like, you know, it just didn't turn out as good as we'd hoped, and that's just like we tried, and and I tried as hard as I could for everybody, but you know, it wasn't. It ended up being weird, and it ended up not working. It does happen, but but most of the time, I'm like trying to get inside of of their heads and figure out what made the good records in their genre tick and, um, and try to bring a little of that to the table within realistic expectations of what the band actually sounds like. Of course. (laughs) It sounds very therapeutic in some ways, at least, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I, I hear therapy in almost everything uh, that people say, but you know, you have like this group and you have this group who have a vision of something and you might come in and kind of have a start a conversation about saying, well, I don't know if this vision is, totally realistic for the kind of music that you're doing. How about we Mm -hmm. switch it this way and you propose things. And what I hear is your strength is flexibility. Totally. I try, I try to make it that, that way for sure. And um, also like when bands first reach out, if it's a band I haven't worked before and and I get a sense of what, what they're looking for and what their budget is and, and what their skill levels are like by listening to their demos. If I think it's not achievable, 
um, then what I'll like, or if I think it's just going to take a ton of time for them to get like more time than they have money, like, cause I can only go so cheap cause I have to pay my rent every single mm. day. It's Vancouver. Um, so if I think that I can't do what they want to do in the time that, uh, that they can afford me to do it in, um, or if I think it's just not going to work and it's going to be a nightmare and I'm not sure if I know how to explain that, then I'll just not do it and, and be like, hey, what you should do is go to a younger engineer, go to one of our engineers that are in their early 20s, someone that wants to sink a ton of time and energy into helping you achieve it. Because in, in this case, what you need is not um, my skills. You need more time. You need time to play the music right, to um, punch in you know, to, to edit, to do whatever you got to do. So your time will be better spent at someone working at a cheaper rate. Um, whereas like I'm faster than the cheaper people, um, and get better results too, most of the time. But, um, but also like, I need to, I need the musicians to be at the caliber that we can also achieve that within the time they can afford me. So yeah, it's, it's a balancing act, but, but yeah, or, or sometimes the people just like, they think they sound like, you know, something really polished, but they actually sound really scrappy. And I kind of think that maybe they don't quite realize that like, you're only as good as your band is to some degree. Like we can, mm -hmm. we can fake it. We can manufacture something fake for you, but I I'm kind of more into making it like a little bit more honest because being loose doesn't necessarily mean you, you suck. You, you might be doing something really cool loose like that. Like if you're not a green days level of tightness yet, you might make a really rad melodic, punk rock ep that's scrappy and people in your community love you know so i don't know so i, I try to judge that see, see what see what i think is going to be a nightmare as well <laughs> it's always gonna be a nightmare for them and me i'm not doing anybody a favor by taking on the project not not them or their wallet or me so yeah so really in terms of recording honesty trying to kind of record what the band is Exactly. And you can enhance it. I mean, we're not, nobody's pretending that we're making a documentary, you know, rec records are, are a piece of art onto themselves. It's not, it's not a documentary, you know, like it's not every band, no matter how raw has some production element, the second you overdub anything or you isolate anything, you're into production territory and you're outside of documentary territory. So, I mean, if I was recording your live show, no editing and no post. Yeah, sure. You know, I guess it could be a documentary, but None of the almost none of the famous albums outside of the genre of like say jazz or classical are that way. Rock music and pop music is a production, so you know it's it's, it's got to pieces got to got to add up to to be something that people are going to enjoy to listen to in the end, I guess. Or 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 the ideas you have are going to come across and people will receive them and it will make some sense, you know, and then they'll identify with it hopefully and love the music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so at this point, do you, to a certain degree, and you don't actually have to answer this, do you pick and choose your projects? Because people come to you. You don't actively seek out projects, I would assume. Yeah, so, I know. Everybody comes to me for sure. So uh, is there ever moments where you're just like, I don't want to do this? Not too much. I mean, I, I squeeze the odd thing in. There's there's a few people that I record um, whose music I don't personally love, but I really love them as people and I believe in what they're doing. So on those records, I'll work extra hard and just try to listen to their references and and do it because I respect the people and I and I, I like the work. Um, but most of the t most of the stuff I've worked on, and this is actually from the beginning. This is not. Um, 
there's very few products that I've had to take on that weren't that weren't good or cool. And that's also because, you know, I don't advertise. It's only word of mouth. So most people that come to me have already heard something that they that I've done that they liked and liked something about it. So they've already chosen me in that way anyways to that 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 my that my aesthetic and, and stuff will work for their sound. So yeah, not too much. I mean there's there's records that are more laborious than others for sure. So um but no, I don't I don't take music that I don't like, I don't record. Uh, I, I would if I had to to survive, but I but right now I don't have to do that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to harken back to something really quickly when you were talking about um, your ninety straight days of twelve hours recording, yeah. and you're like, my girlfriend left me, and mm-hmm. blah, blah blah, and all this stuff. How? I mean, I, I I know your your current setup is two weeks on, two weeks off for the most part. I mean, granted, I know that's a lie. That's just in the studio because you have a home studio and I know you work Mm -hmm. the other two weeks as well. But in theory... Actually, I need need, need 20 20 days on, 10 off. But they don't have to be in a row. I don't don't work them all in a row. I I basically work five... I work four or five days a week or a month in the studio pretty much. So, yeah. I I generally give weekends to to my partner, Matt. But, yeah. Okay. Um, that, That being said, I would assume you haven't always had the luxury to do this no you know what i mean so has it uh, i mean you, you said you have I, I know i know your wife she's awesome she's really mm-hmm. sympathetic and understanding and she, she you know she knows who you are because you wear your heart on your sleeve and you are who you are mm-hmm. but throughout your career um even back to the touring days um has <clears throat> this drive and desire affected your relationships um with partners oh absolutely uh 100 um like basically all of uh, my relationships uh, failed because of my you know insane work habit and um you know just like drive to kind of put like career before personal life for a lot of times and stuff like that um yeah, and, and, until I met Ashley. So so that was, uh, I think her dad was a big workaholic. He was like working China a lot and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think her, her standards are lower. Um, <laughs> so, no, she's used to having, to, to working with, she's uh, living with people who are independent. So she's had right, to yeah. become independent on her own. <laughs> Workaholics. Um, yeah, so no, yeah, it's definitely all, all of them, all of them actually like British failed for that reason. So like, I don't think I've ever broken up with anybody. I think they all doubt me, so um yeah so so uh yeah definitely it's it's there's been sacrifice along the way there's no question about it um um but you know it was worth it i'm I'm happy how it it ended up i don't have i don't have any regrets for all that time i put in and um i'm just like yeah i'm just glad i get to do what i like for a living like like so many people most people i think or a lot of people just really don't like their jobs at all um and, and you know, and, and a lot of people I know also don't like their jobs, but also don't care because they don't have to invest too much into them. Like one of my best friends, you know, he's a, he, he drives a truck four days a week and he loves it that he, he loves that he just gets up work at five and he doesn't bring anything with him. And he can just focus on music and, and social life all the time. And he makes more music than me, he's more prolific than me because, and he, he, you know, he's like, man, I drive the truck. Nobody says shit to me. I'm alone. You know, I'm, he goes, if I got stuck in traffic, 
I make more money. I'm getting paid by the hour. He's like, I hope I get stuck in traffic. I'll just sit there and listen to podcasts and listen to records. And, you know, like he just doesn't give a fuck, you know, and, and he loves that about it. He doesn't want his career to, to, to take over his weekends and shit, you know, <laughs> like, um, so I totally get that mentality. So there's a real benefit to having a job you don't give a fuck about. Um, but it's just not, um, and I did that for years and, if I did that again, I, I guess I'd be fine. But in the meantime, while I have a career that I do give a fuck about and do put all my time into, you know, to not nourish it would be almost be a disservice of everybody that wants to be in my position. And that isn't, you know, like there's all these people yeah. that are clawing up the, 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 the ladder trying to, 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 to take some of my work, you know, or, or, or do what I'm doing or whatever, not even in a, in a, uh, a sneaky way like that, but you know, they want to do what I'm doing. And, I'm like, if I don't work extra hard and maintain my place doing this, then, then yeah, yeah I don't know. What's the point of doing it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It would feel, it would feel like a waste of my time and be, it'd be idiotic to me. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like you're, you're the kind of person who, you know, I, in something you're passionate about, you're 110%, you're all in. I try to be. That's, yeah. 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 No, I'm more that sometimes too. So, <laughs> yeah. What's Evenings that? Weekends. Evenings and weekends, 100, 125% all in. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Two, an extra two out of seven in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, looking to the future now, how would you, is there any like goals or things that you want to aspire to that you haven't right now and but you're aiming towards? No, I don't have any goals actually right now. Uh, only sustenance actually. Yeah, uh, mm. like I, I just signed, I just signed a seven-year lease on my building. So, my goal is to sustain the next seven years. Um, I'm doing exactly what I'm doing now. Um, yeah, no, I don't have any. Um, um, you know, like in the future, I'll do something different. Like I, I sort of think that maybe one day, maybe, maybe. Maybe if I had more space at home, like right now I live in an apartment. Um, so you can't have a recording studio in an apartment building in the center of Vancouver, but um, I can mix a little bit, but I mostly use headphones for that. Um, but uh, um, yeah, like I, I mean, I sort of have a romantic vision to maybe live in a smaller community one day, like maybe up the coast in BC um, and uh, have a house studio where people could come and record me once in a while. But a lot of the mixing I do these days is on the internet anyways. I do social mixing for bands from Europe and South America and stuff that um, Asia do. Um, that, uh, you know, I just work from home and, and mix and, and then have some bands come visit me or I'd fly to their city and record them in actual studios from time to time. Um, that would probably have better balance than I have now, like more time at home and more time to relax and stuff. Um but no, I just pretty much plan on doing exactly what I'm doing. Um, yeah, till I go deaf or crazy, whichever comes first, pretty much. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see if anyone's guess which one comes first. So, but I, yeah, I don't don't have any dreams. Like uh, that sounds dark, but I'm kind of happy with what I'm doing. And there's not, I couldn't run a bigger studio than I'm running. There's not really an opportunity to like buy like real estate, at least not in Vancouver. Um, um, like my studio is like 2,000 square feet. Um, my rent is affordable, but it's a $7 million video. I mean, uh, video, uh, uh facility, <laughs> like how would mm-hmm. I, how many bands do I have to record to have a $7 million, like piece of industrial mortgage. Space in yeah. 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 Like, like a uh, 2000 more punk bands, like, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, like no. rule for like 20 years or something like that. There's no, there's no business model left in Vancouver to, for anybody to have success outside of like the high tech, like uh, boom and bust, like economy or, or, um, or in- inherited 
rich money or or you know you have some backer from like another country that's richer than ours or something like yeah. you know what i mean like there's no no all the people living in mansions in vancouver they didn't get there from blood sweat and tears they got there in some other means hmm. <laughs> i don't think it's dark at all i think it's actually quite positive that in the present moment you're happy with what you're doing right now and you're doing what you're, mm-hmm. you want to do and you look at the future and you say hey i want to do about the same thing i tweak a bit of a bit of, uh, you know, maybe record uh, somewhere else, have a house studio or something, but that's what I'm doing is what you're enjoying. Yeah. And I got a couple other like remote recordings or location recordings in other countries uh, on the radar. And I mean, obviously got to wait for the COVID shit to clear up before um, we could travel again as freely as, as I need to, to do those things. So, so, um, but you know, with any hope at all, we're heading towards that time now. Um, and the timeline of that is obviously a little uncertain in Canada, but, but I'm hoping by this fall that maybe I can do recordings in other countries again. Um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take the vaccine to make that happen. So, um, but obviously that would have to be offered to me, which is, which it is not. So, um, so we will see, you know, once that is, then, then I'll be able to do that. And then hopefully I'll be able to get back to what I was doing. There's, there's, there's definitely some opportunities this year I, I could have done, but that's everybody on earth. That's uh, I don't need to cry about that. We're all in the same shit. So, um, but that, so that's my kind of short-term goal is, um, I want to go down to Mexico to Guadalajara and record a cool band down there that wants to work with me. So I've never been to Guadalajara and I've never, I've mixed uh, some Mexican bands before and mastered some Mexican bands, but I've never uh, been down there to actually record. So that's, um, that's, that's my, my short term goal. And also, Hey, Mexico. You should try to (laughs) go down there. It's great. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, the shows are amazing. Yeah, for sure. And well, I think Guadalajara is supposed to have one of the best rock and roll music scenes. Uh, yeah. It seems like, a well, this band Cannibales that has reached out to me from there, um, they've been around a long time. I, I mixed their previous EP and they've toured up to Vancouver and played with uh, my band and stuff like that. And um, and they said that, um, that actually, like, although Mexico City is a bigger city, Guadalajara seems a little bit more tight knit, actually. Like it's, uh, I think a lot of East Coast American cities are that way too, where some of the smaller ones have a bit more of a tight knit scene yep. than, say, uh, New York, which has a, a massive scene, of course, but maybe a little bit less community because it's so large. So, Guadalajara, has, I've been told, it's kind of almost like a little mini Mexico city with a quite a good, like a lot of good bars and, and stuff for for live music. So, that sounds like my kind of place. I can't wait to go. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's rad. I played there. It was cool. Awesome. Great. Yeah, Actually, that yeah. was the tour you were supposed to come. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, hey, maybe. Uh, well, now you got a killer bass player that uh, has That's a vested true. interest in the project, so uh, you don't need me anymore. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> we'll, when, once once you start doing solo tours, like full band solo tours, when you need an organist, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, so. I was actually pretty impressed. We've managed to get like an hour and a half through this without talking about COVID. But now that we're talking about it, yeah, I I, I understand. I almost thought about not bringing it up just to be like radical enough to not talk about the dumbest thing we could talk about. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, do you? I, I remember over the years you'd always take your fall tour across Canada, yeah, um, with your bands and stuff. But now because this has happened, are you in? a mindset where you're more like, well, once we can do this, I'd rather take that tour time and go to Mexico or go to here as opposed to like driving across Canada and back. Or is that still? Well, I'd like to, I'd like to do both. Um, I mean, with my band now, we're not committed enough to go all the way across Canada and back, like driving. 
Um, I'd love us to fly out to Montreal and, and, Ontario, and Ontario sometime and uh, play around Quebec and Ontario or something like that. But realistically for us, we would like to, our, our goals are small. We just put out a record. So I would love for us to go and do, pardon me, um, Calgary, Kelowna, Edmonton, Lethbridge, you know, just do Western yeah. Canadian uh, provinces because we can, you know, often we do that over Labor Day weekend or, or Thanksgiving weekend or that kind of thing. And, you know, we have a great community of people out in Calgary and Edmonton, great friends and bands that we play with. And, you know, I mean, like everybody on earth right now, I'm just missing my, my friends uh, so much. And luckily I still get to record our, our city never had to go into a lockdown. So I was able to keep my business open um, and keep recording bands, uh, lots of masks and hand sanitizer and all that shit. But, um, but um, you know, we, we never had, um, we've never had, we've never been locked down. We were, we were lucky in BC Um you know, and, and that the approach that they took to dealing with the crisis um, um, was 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 um, with the purpose of keeping small businesses open um, versus the purpose of of of, of maximizing personal isolation um, at the expense of small business. Um, and I don't want to debate um, what the correct uh, approach to that is personally, but um, but with the approach that uh, our health authorities took, I was able to work within those parameters. Um, and, and work I did this year. I still I still rec- I still recorded 55 bands during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I only shut down for for six weeks right at the beginning as people were expected to. And during that time, I mixed six albums um, during the shutdown. <laughs> I just didn't have any clients that time. I still went to the studio every day because it's my own place. It's it's my home. Yeah. You know, I I can go in there and work alone every day I want. Um, there's no law prohibiting me from doing that. Um, and I, yeah, I had a band from Vancouver Island that recorded themselves. I had four of my, I, I'm in three bands, uh, or I, I'm in two bands and I have a solo project. I've mixed all that stuff. Um, and um, yeah, so, so I mean, for me, I would like to just go, all, all my, my goals are small for the uptights. I just want us to go to Alberta and, uh, and play for all our good friends there. There's great music scenes in Calgary and Edmonton, great bands, you know, hit Kelowna and, and Lethbridge as well, the smaller cities that are, that are along the way um, or not too far off the beaten path. Um, and yeah, I'd love us to get out to Ontario and Quebec uh, maybe, uh, maybe next year, you know, not this spring, but maybe spring of... Uh, I guess that's 2022. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah and, and, and be able to, to, to hook up with you guys and, and play with some friends and stuff. But, but yeah, I, I want to, but I also want to travel. I mean, you know, Ashley and I have been, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not actively engaged in band practice right now. Um, we've been asked not to uh, socialize uh, outside of our, our homes. So every night I come home and sit on the couch with my wife. And then when she goes to bed, I go back to work with my headphones on. And <laughs> so that's what I do. That's what I do right now and hang out with my cat. Um, so I'm looking forward to, you know, for all of us right now on Earth, we're just looking forward to um, expanding our social bubbles because uh, that's what humans, uh, it's our instinct to do so. And, uh, and, and a socialized, social isolation is, is, is difficult um, um, as it's kind of outside of our natural ways of life for the most of us. So, so I'm looking forward to getting out of that. Yeah. Hopefully, Absolutely. hopefully soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're. Yeah. Well, as you know, you just mixed our new record and yeah. we're, we're trying to figure out what to do. And we've been talking to labels and stuff and everybody's in the same boat. They're like, we can't, we're not putting out records because nobody's touring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And lots of people are recording. I mean, like yourself, you've written all this music during this time. Um, you know, and I get, I get it. You know, there's the meme going around, like, uh, you know, I don't feel bad if you don't feel like maximizing your use of this free time and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, don't feel bad for anything. Do what you want. 
Um, but for most of the bands in my scene or, or in my circle, including you know yourself, Chris, and, and other people, um, they are actively preparing to record or are writing. Um, yeah. And I mean, like this afternoon after I'm done uh, this podcast, I'm, I, I have a Zoom with another band that wants to lock out for a month. I've got you in for all of August, um, which I'm really optimistic is going to be uh, fun and and safe and happen. You know, I'm I'm yeah. a, I'm a, I'm in a hundred percent belief of it, of it of it happening. Frankly, so I, I don't have any hesitation. Last night. No, awesome! I'm yeah. really, I can't can't wait to hang out with music. I mean, we hope, yeah. hope hopefully we, we might not even have to wear masks. Something else, so so let's hope we can just fucking slobber all over one another. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll find out. Yeah, but um, but uh, we are where we are right now, and most bands are trying to write music and prepare. And I mean, the music that's been coming to me has been emotionally charged. You know, everybody's emotional right now. Everybody's like a bomb about to go off from sitting around their house. Like I can only watch love Island for so fucking long until I got to explode. <laughs> right. So it's like, you know, I watch, I watch every cooking show on Netflix and I'm refreshing the Netflix browser, seeing if there's any more cooking shows. I'm like, surely they could film a cooking show with the COVID-19 parameters. Come on. <laughs> not what not watching mind of a chef season one over and over again um and our fucking chef's table I, i've watched master chef australia seasons one through 12 it's like <laughs> they're a hundred episodes long a full hour each that's a thousand i've watched over a thousand a thousand hours of master chef australia in one year you know so so wait, wait, yeah I mean, how? so then, how? there there's balance there <laughs> yeah there's, i'm watching a lot of australian cooking shows um but yeah so um but so bands are, are working hard and, and all the best bands that i work with and my favorite musicians again yourself included chris um are all coming to me this year and I'm, I'm i'm having my most successful year despite the fact that the music industry is totally fucked <laughs> so yeah um, and nobody knows how anybody sells this shit once it's done yeah. um hopefully on the road but again we will just have to see how how things evolve societally and biologically <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah we will find I out. have a fantasy that uh, after this, there will be a post-COVID that it's going to be like the roaring 20s where mm -hmm. people are just going to... I mean, I think the first time I'm going to go see a show, I'm going to cry and, Everybody and definitely cry. hog the person next to me who's unknown uh, and be so excited. Uh, and the musicians that come into my studio, one cries every single time right now. It's like, uh, you know, the other day, I was like, I was recording a, a, a brass section, but socially distanced. They came in at separate times. Um, you know, I had the trumpeteer come in and she played. And then I had the, um, the, the trombonist, uh, actually, first, sorry, first the trumpeteer came in and she played. And then the trombonist recorded herself at home and sent it in. And these two women uh, generally form a brass section. Uh, it's called, uh, called Gorpal. And it's their brass section. They back up lots of funk bands and jazz bands or top-notch uh, session players in Vancouver. And generally, I have them both come in at the same time because they're hot when they play together and they're tight <laughs> when they can look at one another and nail all the little uh, all the articulation. Um, but yeah, they, they, you know, like they, they cried to not be together, but they also cried to, uh, just to be playing music in the first, mm. uh, you know, for the first time in a studio, uh, she yeah. makes her living as a real estate agent the rest of the time, which has been booming in Vancouver tourist yeah. open as fucked as that is. Yeah. Um, so she's like, yeah, I've been making money this time, not laid off selling tons of houses and apartments in Vancouver, but she's like, I haven't picked up my horn and she, she normally plays in a funk 
band called Queer as Funk, which is um, an all LGBTQ band uh, Amazing. That, uh, that that you know entertain people every weekend, tour up and down the coast, and just have these community events that are just like it's a big part of the Vancouver scene. And then yeah, so after she's done playing, she ripped the trombone, still had it, even though she hadn't picked it up in eight months. So then she cried, and then the songwriter that had hired her, then she cried, and then I, then I wound up because I was just like, oh, fuck, man. Yeah. Like, we got to get back to slobbering all over one another. Like, you know, <laughs> but, uh, we got to speak moistly again. Um, so people like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I think that if, uh, if it's allowed to happen uh, in, in whatever capacity, I think people will go right away. I think people will be like awkward for 20 minutes for like, oh, I guess I got to make small talk again. Oh, I got to like, you know, wear my good shirt or, you know, like people got to like do the social um, preparations to engage themselves in public life again. And for 20 minutes or half an hour, they're going to be, they're going to be awkward. And then by the end of the night, they're going to be slobbering all over one another and hugging and crying and shit. And then it'll just be right back to normality because, because, it is normality to behave that way. Society has always had music and has always had community and has always had events. I mean, music is at least 200,000 years old and may even predate speech. Yes, so, it, like, it is. You know, the first word like, was sung. Yeah, it's way harder to take it away than it is to turn it back on. That's for sure. Mm. Like, yeah. Which, which, and I mean, for that reason alone, I kind of like, I see you know, the young people that, you know, are throwing secret parties or whatever and like, I'm not a young person anymore and I'm not partaking in that. And, you know, I don't necessarily condone that amongst my uh, age group or friends. Like we're all taking one for the team. Like, like you guys are too doing our best uh, until uh, we're at a place where, where uh, suppression has, uh, has, has, uh, or, or herd immunity exists, whether that be through uh, intervention or, or natural, natural uh, evolution of, of the pandemic. But, um, but, you know, for the young people, I kind of sympathize with them because it's just like, it's so hard to not fucking party when you're young because it's the time. It's the time where it's so natural for you to want to do that. Mm. You're in the best. You're, you're you're at your best. So, uh, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, young people have paid the biggest toll uh, during this time. So, but uh, anyways, it'll pass. Yeah. We all, we're all working on it. Working well, on it. thank you, Jesse, for speaking so moistly. Yeah, <laughs> for the last uh, an hour and forty minutes over Zoom, I guess. <laughs> over Zoom, yeah, We're protected. Yeah. yeah, totally. The rest of the time, we'll go back to keeping it in. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, good old Trudeau. If anything came from his, <laughs> if anything came from his leadership, it's speaking moistly. <laughs> yeah. I just can't believe yeah. you brought it up. <laughs> so I think it was funny. perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so funny. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. So right. to wrap it up, you know, yeah, yeah sure. What uh, what would you? Uh, what would well, you dumb us? question. What would you impart to someone? <clears throat> let's say someone who has never gone on tour, never recorded, never done anything, and they've just lived through and are currently living through this pandemic. Like, how would you explain that? that reality that's that that feeling how would you try to convey that to someone and, and like how, how it was in the past you mean like when we no, just just like well yeah but the, oh, yeah. but the feeling's still the same like you know mm -hmm. i up until this thing i, I still tour a lot and yeah sure know, the, the feeling is still the same when you come to you know um we showed up at a small town in russia 
Mm-hmm. And we had no idea what to expect. And these people were building a wood stage in a parking lot behind yeah. the museum. And we were just kind of like, huh. Okay. Yeah. It was a free show. Yeah. Uh, sponsored by the museum. And we were the only band that played. A friend of mine opened up doing an acoustic set. We there were easily a couple hundred people there, maybe more. They were majority of them were super young. Um we played through our whole set. They they kept asking for more and we couldn't we, we didn't understand them. So we got we found someone who spoke English, who's Russian who spoke English. Yeah. She got up on stage, explained to them, like, oh, they don't have any more songs. Um and they were like, just play them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, a shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we played a bunch of the songs again, and it was just like, how do you explain that feeling to someone who's never experienced that, who has now gone through this reality of of COVID nineteen? You know. Well, I think it's the human. It's the human connection. It's the human spirit. You know. It's it's um, it's. I think it's easier for us to to almost have those experiences than to ignore them. So, um, or to not have them. And you know, I don't know if um. I don't know how the, the the community, the punk rock underground touring community um, evolves from here on out. I, I think it does change and punk rock and stuff like that evolves over time for sure. Um, but I think that, um, I think I would just explain it as, um, as being like, it's it's that it's that it's that time where everybody is is, is aligned in, in 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 the in the love and the feeling they're having for live music and and for music in general and for 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 hanging out for 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 partying for however people want to do it you know and um, I just feel like I feel like um, it's it's always going to be there um, and 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 blips and bumps in the roads are probably like, like this is in the grand scheme of things, this is a bump in the road. Um, I aren't going to change that ever. So if people um, want to um, invest energy into making it happen, there's nothing stopping them from making that happen in, in the future. And how the parameters of that play out, we, we, we will just have to wait and see. Um, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm fully expecting that within a year or two from now, there's no doubt that, that that will exist in the same way. And probably in a lot of cities and countries, it, it already does. Um, you know, Canada's, uh, is, Canada's response to the pandemic and, and stuff is not the same as every other country and its approach is not the same. And, um, and, and so, so the timeline of how these things evolve is different. So, um, so as a result of that, I think everybody will do that again one day and everybody will feel that love again one day. So, um, but, 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 but exactly when I, I mean, we all hope sooner than later, but, but who knows for sure. It's um, as much as we try to, as humans kind of control the situation that we're in and are actively are controlling the situation we're in, including our social behaviors. Um, we are not ultimately in, in, in control. Nature is in control. So, so we will, we will find out what's in cards for us. We, we can try to um, steer uh, nature, but we will never really, fully win <laughs> and, and the pandemic is completely proof of that <laughs> yeah no you're totally right. most of us have been trying very fucking hard at at moderate amounts of success <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah that thanks yeah. for that answer man it was great yeah hey Evo, a, anything else you want to know yeah uh, what a perfect <laughs> uh, first episode to more than music uh thank uh, you yeah, jesse great interviews I yeah love you i think uh, uh, people his interviewers <laughs> <laughs> well you're a good guest you're a generous yeah. guest uh, thank you. 
<laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I can't wait to hear it all. And uh, I, hope I, I hope I don't cringe. I had a big cup of coffee, second one of the day before I hit this. So I hope I didn't uh, ramble on. Well, well, cup. I had some brose. So uh, yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the time we're tipping the glass together. Oh, uh, me too, man. With Chris Snellgrove, too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be seeing Chris for coffees in August. And Tebow, I hope I'm seeing you and you're meeting your girlfriend uh, sooner than that uh, uh, for brose. For brose, yeah. Or <laughs> for like our it. men's wellness program. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, thanks so much. I love you, man. Love you too. All right, and, boys. Uh, take it easy, guys. You too. And I uh, can't wait to see the podcast or listen to it all. I'll, I'll, <laughs> share, it with, I'll share it with my friends. Sweet. Right on. <laughs>